This is exactly right. Suspending your own self and seeking to understand somebody, asking those questions that show, hey, I care. I care about what informs you and the way that you think and feel about things. Can you take some time to let me know, right, what makes you you? I think that is such an important thing to do, especially in this day and age where everything just feels so divisive. If you just stop and think, well, even though we might disagree on absolutely everything, you're still human. So am I. We have a lot more in common than we have dividing us. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan, your host. And let me tell you about our mission at Parent Footprint. It is to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. We believe the key to raising happy, healthy, and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives, happiness, health, and engagement. At Parent Footprint, we firmly believe that awareness is the foundation for your vision of successful parenting. And with increased awareness and intention, we can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint on our children. Today's show, which is completely aligned with our mission, is called Catharsis, Hope, and Craigslist with our guest, Helena Deabala. Helena is an Albanian immigrant. She came to the United States at 12 years old and spent her weekends helping her mother clean houses to make ends meet. She later graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the George Washington University and also from its law school. Unfulfilled at her day job, she gave herself one year, one year to just listen. And five years in, Craigslist, confessional.com, is her full-time project. She's written for the Washington Post and Vogue. And Bala is represented by Folio Literary Management, which has received an offer to option her book for television. And she is the author of Craigslist Confessional, a collection of secrets from anonymous strangers. There's so much more to say, and I want Helena to tell her story. So I'm going to stop here and formally welcome you to the show. Hello, Hi, Helena. Dr. Dan. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to chat. I, I want you to start with your story, but before, I want to read one more thing um, that, really, that really moved me about um, something that you've said. And uh, it goes like this. This experience has taught me about what it means to be human, about genuine connection. It has taught me how to listen, to learn, not to change, not to fix, not to respond, to learn. It brings me back to that quote by Socrates, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. These stories really put things into perspective. They make you realize the futility of passing judgment and the utility of empathy. That moved me. Um, I, <laughs> that moved me too, just hearing it back. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I honestly, I think back to that quote so very often and it's this expansion of the heart and the mind and being able to anchor at a certain place and transport yourself back in time and understand how much you've changed. You very seldom have that opportunity come up naturally in life. And I think when I started this project, I was barely 24. I'm now 
uh, 31. I'm a mom, you know, many, many years, many transformative years have passed. And I think, um, I've been able to look back because this, this book, this project bookends, you know, this whole experience for me, I've been able to look back at the beginning of it all and how much I have changed from being a listener and what I've learned, the lessons that I've learned over these past few years. And it's been truly a high, a heart and mind expanding, um, type Mm -hmm. of, uh, experience. So I've been very lucky to, you know, Mm -hmm. happened upon this idea that ended up being so transformative, but yeah, the more, you know, Mm -hmm. the more you realize I know nothing. (laughs) Yes. And, and, and I believe that, you know, our past experiences always informs not only our development and our outlook, but also just, um, kind of our mission, our passion, um, everything. And so please tell everyone a little bit more about your, your family history, your history in this country and how you came, you know, through your educational path. And then of course, we'll talk about how you stumbled upon this question. Yeah, I, I've always been one of those people who kind of envies the folks that when you ask them where they're from, they can just say, Oh, I'm from Fairfield, Connecticut, which is, um, you know, so simple and and straightforward, but, um, fortunately, or maybe even unfortunately, I don't know, haven't figured it out yet, but that's, (laughs) that hasn't been the case for me. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I'm an immigrant and I came to this country in 2001, I was, uh, 12 and, uh, came with just my mom, um, and the trajectory to Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is where we initially moved, was kind of a bumpy one. I was uh, born in Albania, and then my dad uh, is a career politician, and he, um, in 1997, was given this amazing opportunity to be the ambassador of Albania to Slovenia. So we lived there for four years, and And then unfortunately, Albania went through a lot of political turmoil and upheaval. And because my dad was one of the founders of the opposition party there, uh, it was very unsafe for us to go back. Um, And we moved to the States and and sought political asylum. And initially, it was only my mom and I who could come because we couldn't afford for the whole family to move. And uh, once we were here, um, I went straight to school and um, I remember my parents thought, you know, education is, is the only thing really worth investing in when you have a child. You know, they felt so strongly about that. And so they wanted me to go to a really good school and, and every little bit of money that we could save went towards that. And I applied to scholarships and it was just made into such a huge thing, such a focal point of mm-hmm. existence at that point. For me to already, you know, be this great student and, and we all made sacrifices for me to be there. And my mom, unfortunately, kind of bore the brunt of those sacrifices in that my mom is a family medicine doctor and um, going to medical school in Albania is, is actually quite challenging. Um, and it was not an easy path for her. And uh, when we came here, she kind of faced the... Uh, impossible choice of either going back and taking her boards again or um, going to work to support her family. And unfortunately, the latter option was really the only real option because we needed the money badly. And so she started cleaning houses. I remember one of my classmates Mm. had 
her mom had a house cleaning business and she was also uh, an immigrant from Peru and she knew that we were in a very bad place. And so she asked my friend to ask me if my mom needed help. And I said, I think we do. And so that's how it started. And, um, on the weekends I'd go with my mom and, and, you know, Fairfield County is very affluent and, um, you know, we had this 1985 Fort Tempo. I remember it like it was yesterday and somebody mm. had mm. painted it with an interior paint. So it wasn't a car paint. It was actually like taking wall paint and, and slapping it on a car. And, um, mm. it was just rusting and in really bad shape. And it made this awful screeching sound. And it was so, um, ego crushing <laughs> to drive that car yeah. anywhere, you know, to drive it to school every day was embarrassing for both my mom and for me, but to drive it up these beautiful mansions and then go inside and start cleaning. And you know, I was 12. So I, I understood a lot more mm -hmm. than I was letting on to my mom at that point. Mm -hmm. But this was very formative because I think this was my first time kind of facing reality. You know, we, we had lived a mm -hmm. very good life back home and had lived a very good life in Slovenia. You know, my parents both had social standing there and uh, had great jobs and economically in these small developing countries, we were doing quite well. And then we moved to the States and all of that was immediately all stripped. And for me, it was, I mean, I, 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 had very little sense of my identity at that point. So it just became part of my identity. But for my mom, you know, she'd had a whole career, a life, uh, uh, an identity before all of this. And then just to have to reinvent and start from scratch, I can't imagine the effect. I yeah. Can't yeah. Mm -hmm. And so she went through depression. She really did. And I didn't know it at the mm -hmm. time because I didn't know what depression was. I don't think she really, I mean, she probably did, but she wasn't, putting a name to it. I just remember her crying a lot and she lost a very, very intense amount of, of weight, uh, probably from some of the physical work, but also just from, you know, she just had no appetite, couldn't eat, just kind of lost that luster for life. And, um, it was a very hard time. And, and when my dad moved in with us, I almost had a little bit of hope thinking, okay, you know, there'll be an extra pair of hands. Um, but it, it arguably got even harder. We moved into this tiny little part, quite literally tiny. I think it was less than 400 square foot. Um, so my parents had their own bedroom and I slept in the living room. Um, and it was roach infested. It was just not, not, um, not easy to live there. And my dad, you know, who also had all of this full career of work was in his four, actually fifties at the time when he moved here. Um, he went to work as a Barton security guard at the home Depot. Hmm. So he was checking, he was the guy standing out at the door, checking receipts to make sure people weren't, um, <laughs> weren't stealing. And I yeah. remember the pride that he took in his work. I remember him waking up every morning and ironing his uniform and using a handkerchief, uh, over the iron. So there'd be a buffer between the uniform and the iron and it wouldn't leave shiny strips. And he was just so proud in this work that he was doing. And, you know, they'd have performance reviews and he'd always say, 
uh, I, you know, I passed, I caught everything. He was just so proud. And I couldn't understand why he was so proud to be doing this work. Um, but these were all kind of formative. These were formative experiences for me. And, and yeah. I think I, I haven't really ever spoken about this before, but I remember, um, uh, my dad came home one day and he said that he'd met this gentleman whose name was, I remember him very clearly. His name was Jerry Brown and Jerry Brown had stopped and spoken to my dad and had said, what's your story? And my dad had said, what do you mean? Mm. And he'd said, what are you doing here? What, this is not, what are you doing here? You're, you stand out like a sore thumb. This is not a, an appropriate job for you. What's your story? What do you, why are you here? And my dad had told him about, you know, our lives and, and, and how he'd ended up here and the job that he'd had before. And Jerry Brown had been so impressed and had gone to People's United Bank, which is for, for everybody who's not in the New England area, I believe it's just the New England bank, but it's a kind of regional bank and had gone to a friend who had worked there and said, I have this guy and he'd be fabulous here. Would you give him a job? And my dad went to interview. And I remember him coming home and saying he got the job and he was so happy. And, and Jerry Brown became, you know, a lifelong friend. And that's all it took is him stopping and talking to a security wow. guard at the home Depot and saying, Hey, what's your story? You stand out. Yeah. Huh. So these were the, the looks behind the scenes of how Helena got the idea of Craigslist confessional, all these little formative experiences yeah. of uh, meeting people and going through things and little experiences all gathered together that make you think and believe and clue you into the fact that there's so much more to people than what we share, what we choose mm -hmm. to share with mm -hmm. the outside world. So there's yeah. the roots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so now this totally comes full circle for me, knowing how um, the Craigslist confessional started with that lunch and that question. So tell everyone, you know, about that lunch and what, what occurred. Yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, education was a huge deal and, and for my parents, rightfully so they insisted that I do something that was, kind of a secure and safe path forward. You know, they didn't want me to struggle here. And I'd always expressed interest in law. And so it was almost, you know, a, a done deal that I would become a lawyer. Um, and so I went to GW um, in DC and I graduated. I was just so driven. I, I was laser focused on this goal of going to law school. So I graduated Phi Beta Kappa, I took my LSATs, did well, got into GW Law, which is a, a top tier program and was very proud at the time. And it was one of these, you know, moments of, wow, look how far we've come. And then first year of law school uh, was, I was disillusioned. I, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It was, um, it was soul crushing a bit. And, um, I didn't really see myself being able to do it long-term. And I, I talked to my parents and said, Hey, I don't think this is the right choice for me. And I might want to take a break and the panic and the heartbreak that followed just from expressing this doubt was so overwhelming that I decided to stick with it. And so I finished three years of mm. law school and mm. then got my first job. Uh, yeah. Got my first job mm -hmm. at 24 and, um, or 20, no, 23. 
and um, first real job, quote unquote. And I was working on Capitol Hill. And then from my experience that I gained on the Hill, just lots of policy work, uh, I ended up uh, getting a lobbying job. So I became a higher education lobbyist. And that was yet another kind of moment, natural moment to kind of pause and reflect and see, yeah, this is not where I want to be. And um, I'd, I'd go to work every day and it's this beautiful build it, gilded building in like downtown DC. And you look around and you can literally see the White House office buildings from where I worked. And it just feels like this moment of accomplishment and, and everything that we've all worked for coming full circle. And I should be happy about this. So why am I not? And in one of those walks from the train to the building where I worked, um, you know, there were homelessness is, is a um, unfortunately very prevalent problem in Washington, D.C. And there was one homeless man in particular who always stood in the same place and was right in the in front of the office where I worked, office building where I worked, and his name was Joe. And I kind of started building this sort of loose relationship with Joe and that I'd, you know, say hello, or when I was going to the Hill, I'd keep, I'd, you know, take box lunches and bring them to him or I'd go around the corner and get him a sandwich or go around and get him like, you know, I always tried to think of things that I could get that were high yield. So I'd get him like, um, uh, like wonder bread, well not wonder bread, but bread, like loaves of bread and, and cold cuts and things that he could use long term to kind of make, um, and that weren't totally immediately perishable to make food for himself. And so I had put some thought into you know, having Joe as part of my life and the responsibility that I felt that I owed to him to, you know, be a human being and notice him and see him and realize that he was in need. And then one day I, I didn't, I, I don't know. I was probably just upset about something or was having a bad day or something. And so I, I walked by him and kind of waved high and went into the building and I, I didn't, I had nothing had no food for him. Um, and so he called after me and he said, Hey, are you upset with me? And it was, I, I kind of paused and felt so crushed by the weight of that question. Uh, because I had overlooked him, I think like everybody else. And it made me feel, um, very sad for him, for his circumstance. And so I stopped to, to talk to him that day and I went around the corner. I remember there was, uh, it wasn't a subway. I want to say it was a pot bellies around the corner. Um, and we got a sandwich and I shared a sandwich with him and I sat down and talked to him and I asked him about, you know, questions that I think for a while had been brooding is, you know, how, how did you end up homeless? And, you know, um, Joe had issues with mental illness, unfortunately, and he kind of shared about his family and, and his trajectory. And, and I found myself saying some things about my own life and how I'd ended up there and sharing some thoughts and feelings that felt very, very private, very heavy. And, um, and I remember walking away from that conversation and feeling like something like this exchange had changed something imperceptibly. So this small thing had changed in my life and I felt a little bit better due to it. And I kept thinking and thinking and thinking back to this conversation. And I kept 
wondering why it was that I'd felt so free to share with this stranger about my life. And I, I would never, never say any of these things to my parents, forget about it. Um, not to my boyfriend at the time, uh, not to friends, definitely not. There was just this, this persona that I felt I needed to uphold. Um, and there was so much riding on that. And so I felt that I could only really be myself with this total stranger. And so that stuck that realization, Mm -hmm. that thought, that conversation, that feeling afterwards, um, that conversation with Joe stuck. And that's where the idea came from of wanting to replicate that. How do I do this again? How do Mm -hmm. I feel like this again? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, initially Uh. about other people it was initially totally about me is how do i feel Mm -hmm. seen how do i find myself Mm -hmm. in others and so i posted Mm -hmm. this ad on craigslist in the personal section and i offered to listen anonymously and for free to stories that people didn't feel that they could share with anyone else in their lives um and i posted the ad i set up my first meeting and i showed up and the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, and you, so you, you pulled a Jerry Brown. Yeah, I pulled right? a you Jerry Brown. Said, Absolutely. Like, what's your story? Like, Joe, what's your story? How did you end up here? Like, ve- like that's just so, like, wow, that's just so synchronistic. It really is. Um, I pulled a Jerry Brown. That's a perfect way to put yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And so your book, which is a collection of these stories, you know, they, um, there are many with parent, you know, many involve parenting. Oh, and I'm sure you had a wide selection and, and I'm just highlighting that many involved parenting. What, what led you to include so many from the probably vast array of stories that you were told? Well, I think in retrospect, you know, I, I've listened to so many of these stories and a lot of them. Um, either are tangentially about parenting or directly about the way that people parent. So, for example, Edie's story is about her parenting her her child, which was born with a cluster of heart defects. Um, there are other stories that deal with parental alienation. So those are a little bit more kind of specific. But then I became a parent myself. I became a mom two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. and um, I think I started to realize that <laughs> there was a whole world of being, of understanding that had been until that point completely untapped in my brain. I didn't expect becoming a parent to be such an abrupt trajectory down a completely different road and a completely different way of being. It was a newfound appreciation for what it meant to, in my case, to be a mother to a child. And I think that I wanted to honor and see the things that come along with this added identity. Um, And I I ended up ultimately Mm -hmm. sharing my own story, which is, as you know, the one that ends the book and it's of uh, postpartum depression and anxiety and, and having my kid and, and Mm -hmm. the, traumatic experience that that was. And so it was really one of those full circle moments for me where I understood, wow, I thought that writing and researching and speaking to these people would be the most life-changing thing that I did. And it was in in the sense that it was a concerted effort on my part 
to leave something that I had worked very hard to cultivate behind and do something entirely different. But it, it was, I saw it coming, you know, I, I knew that this was what I was doing. Whereas becoming a parent was, it was out of nowhere for me. It just was, it was a, an abrupt change that I never expected. Even though you hear everybody kind of tell you this will change everything. You don't realize until it happens to you. And then, <laughs> and then, yeah. and then you look around, yes. like, why did nobody tell me? And everybody's like, no, but we did. He's like, no, nobody did. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's part of um, our um, survival instinct and perpetuation of the species to not fully understand what is involved totally. in, in the Otherwise, process. Who right? in their right mind would yeah. do it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, who would choose yes, this? Exactly. Right? So I yeah. we have a, a very close couple of friends who just told us the other day that they're having their second, and their son is younger than. Ronan is and uh, they're like mm-hmm. yeah we you know we, we decided to get pregnant and it was a choice and they were just so sage about it you know so calm and and uh, Alex and I came home afterwards and I said what do you think their secret is and he's like I don't know what are they thinking how is this okay like how did they get to a point where they're ready to do it again I was like I have no idea we were looking at each other entirely baffled as to how to get to a place where you are okay with going through it all over again. And I think we need some more time to forget. I think that's the answer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, to that point, I, uh, and having done this for a while and having, uh, three, um, kids of my own, I could say that it really depends on the whole birth situation, the family situation, the temperament of the child, whether there were complications as you experienced and we experienced as well. It's like all of these things make a difference. And there are those people out there that things just go swimmingly. Like they just, you know, like this mild temperament, these calm parents, these very stable circumstances. And I think that makes a difference when you were deciding, when when choosing. How, how, how to have another or how soon to have it another. It absolutely does. And you, you, you totally just hit the nail on the head because I think that part of the experience of feeling like you're looking around and wondering how people are doing it again is that you don't really, like, I don't know what my friend's, you know, birth story is. And it might have been easy. It might not have. Uh, but comparing mm-hmm. your own trajectory to somebody else's, sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Roman. Hey, Roman. Oh, Hi. What's up, bub? You don't want this one. Okay. He's not a big fan of the monkeys jumping on the bed. I like that. This is this is this is parenting in real time, everyone. Being oh, a yeah. uh, professional and being a parent, and that sh- is to be celebrated. Uh, it's not easy. I... I no. I apologize and I hope that I will have everyone's understanding, but hopefully he'll like this song and it'll give us a couple of moments of peace. How's this, Ronan? He's gonna love this song. You love it? For at least yes. two minutes. I think I think we're good. We have some time. Let's go back Thumbs to it. Up. Yes. All right. Okay. Okay. But so you were saying it's just about, you know, we don't know and this is you're all about hearing people's stories. We don't know other people's exactly. stories and we don't like everyone has their own capacity and resilience and coping 
like based on who they are and based on their upbringing too. So it's like, it, I'm glad you're, you're also saying this too. It's, I know having, when we, my wife and I had three very intense, sense, intense, complex, sensitive kids. And we were always looking around in those early days. It's like, what is wrong yeah. with us? Why, why do we always have people screaming and crying and can't have a calm family dinner and go out? Like what, what is wrong with us? And it's just, first of all, you don't know what is really going on with others. And secondly, everyone's got their own circumstances and each kid comes in with their own, their own stuff in life. Totally. And it's, I think totally normal to also internalize and and say, well, what's wrong with us? Like you said, right. You never look around and Mm -hmm. say, well, what's wrong with everybody else? You always say, oh, this is, I must be broken in some way or default. Uh, There might be Mm -hmm. some sort of fault with me that I'm not uh, able to handle this better. It's never a situation in which you think, oh, well, you know, everybody to each his or her own. And and I have my own path. Nobody's that Zen in the moment. And I remember so very clearly I was in DC with Ronan and we were out to eat and it was a whole bunch of us. And I think probably the first meal that we'd had as a group of people. And I was just so nervous about, um, you know, it going well. And, uh, this mom came in with three kids and, uh, tablet in front of one tablet in front of the other feeding the third one. And she managed to get a meal in, in between. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she's a hero. How's she doing this with three? And then at the same time we were like, you know, these tablets, is that a good idea? And you, you're, you're almost conditioned right, to like, right. Oh, well, I don't know. Right, I mean, she's doing right. okay. But also the tablet, and now it's like, my God, like I'm, my kid is in front of a tablet right now. That's because it's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way it works, everyone. So don't judge because as you hear, totally. as you hear, there we go. So yeah. It's, he needs he, you. It's he needs never, you. It's never yes. easy. And it's just, a, a, again, yeah. a, an exercise in, in futility to judge anybody else's circumstance. But you're right in that you just never know what somebody else went through. And not feeling ready is, I think, mm-hmm. a normal part of that, yeah. especially after, you know, the PPD and PPA. It was just took it out of me, took it out of me for a good year. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for sure. Well, let's actually, let's go with your story. And then I'm going to ask you about the other stories because we're on your story. And the, the, for, for listeners, you know, it's the last chapter that Helena writes her story. And it's so, you know, it's so raw and um, you, you just make it so vulnerable. And it's, it's clear how um, Roman's medical issues can cause the worry and anxiety that unfortunately you know spiraled out of control and all of those those what you know someone who uh, has uh, I, I am a uh, professional both personally and professionally with anxiety and i could say those what ifs just can mm-hmm. just can run away and are so scary and so what i mean in looking back on that experience like what what did you learn about yourself and just about being human? I think, you know, I, I, I didn't see this coming. And, and who does, to be honest with you? But I, you know, had Ronan and I felt, oh, um, I couldn't wrap my head around what had happened. And I, I thought that I wasn't really coming to terms with the fact that there was this little human here now. I was in a bit of shock and 
you know, as you know, hormones are haywire. Everything has just changed. You've given birth. Your body feels wonky and weird and bruised and painful in places you didn't you ever have felt pain before. And it's just you're in a total haze. You're breastfeeding. You haven't slept. Um, and I just had this feeling that Ronan wasn't getting any food. Um, and I was pumping, as I was saying, pumping and, and just awake at all times, watchful, making sure that he was, you know, doing okay, but he didn't seem to be eating anything. And I kept trying to voice that to the doctors and the nurses saying, Hey, I don't think he's eating. And I'd get, you know, Oh, just a little tiny drop is fine. His stomach is, you know, really small at this point. Don't worry. Has he pooped? Has he peed? And we're going through this huge you know, kind of haze. And, and then we're getting ready to take him out of the hospital. And we put him in this beautiful, pristine white bassinet. And he looks yellow to me. And I say to the nurse, he looks yellow. And she says, No, no, he's fine. He passed his, his Billy Rubin test. He's okay. And I said, Would you mind checking him again? And she kind of ugh, wasn't happy about it, but she did it. And then his result came back as intermediate high risk for jaundice and you know I'd never heard about jaundice before so I wasn't prepared I didn't know and of course um, my initial reaction was to go and look it up and see you know what it was and I did I was like okay this sounds relatively normal like it's something quite a lot of kids go through and then we're you know fast forwarding here because I don't want to give the whole story away but Essentially, Ronan's Billy levels, even after he went after under the light, just kept rising. Um, They went down, but then inexplicably, they kept going higher up. And it wasn't just one bounce. It was several tests that his Billy levels were caught just climbing back again. And I needed answers and nobody had them. So I went looking for them online which was a giant mistake because I saw all of the things that could go wrong with uh, yep. uncontrolled Billy Rubin levels. And, and I put it all squarely in my shoulders that I had failed him, that I should have said, no, he's not getting food. We should supplement him. He's not eating. This is because of me that my son is going through this. And so I went down this terrible spiral of shame and guilt and fear Um, and I felt that I was so responsible for Ronan and for keeping him safe and that he was only a few days old and I'd already failed him so many times and I couldn't afford to do that again. And I was manning my tower, my lookout tower at all times. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything, but watch him and make sure that he was okay. And I watched everything. I watched the way he was moving his arms. I watched the way he was moving his legs. Was it symmetrical? Had he suffered brain damage? And was this because I hadn't, et cetera, et cetera, right? The spiral that you well understand as a professional and probably also personally of uncontrolled thoughts, one leading to the other, to the other, to the other leading into this dark, dark pit of despair and not being able to climb out to even see the sun for two seconds. Um, And that's where I was for, I would say a good six months. Um, And, and then I got myself into therapy and I, talked through the fears and Ronan, you know, was showing himself to be, um, 
healthy and okay. And I think I started putting my guard down little by little by little. Uh, that's not to say that I still don't deal with the repercussions of that um, kind of difficult start, but I kind of can get my head out of that deep, dark hole for long enough to look around and see, okay, let's put me in context. Let's understand what's happening and why. So I know a lot more about my situation now, but going through it, it was a true hell. Um, and I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. so many people go through it and it's not something that's well mm-hmm. understood. And it's not something that we no. are prepared to, um, to deal with still in this country. I went, I mean, as I mentioned before, I live in Manhattan. Um, I went and gave birth in a really great hospital. I went to my OBGYN afterwards and my pediatrician and failed both postpartum tests that were supposed to screen me for postpartum anxiety and depression and uh, was not referred to anybody for help by both of these doctors. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Well, and you sought help, and that's for everyone listening. It's just so important to seek professional help when things are beyond um, things that we can manage, that our friends, that our family can manage. That's it's seeking help makes a difference. Um, so, Helena, I in, in thinking about your book and knowing um, how much people are going to enjoy it, give us your takeaway from the most important parenting sort of lessons or stories that you came away with? I think ultimately parenting, humaning, but let's say parenting specifically. Sorry, guys. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Ronan's being Ronan. It's about keeping your wits about you when somebody is screaming in your face that this is not the song they want. How could you no, possibly not no. understand that? How did you get it wrong I know, again? Mom, come on, get with it. Um, what can you do? So sorry about yeah. that again, but uh, I think I was saying humaning, but parenting in general, I think what it was for me is this, this abrupt change of perspective that helped me see something life as I had seen it before from a completely different prism. It was, a shift, mm-hmm. a total shift in perspective that I hadn't chosen. And it was just like waking up one day as a, a, a suddenly an entirely different person. And I think this book for me is that same experience, but instead of still being Helena, it's almost like you're dipping your whole self into somebody else's life and existence and perspective for those few hours that I spend with them. Now, what is the utility in this, right? What is the utility of learning to see the world, not through your own eyes now, but suddenly through your child's eyes? Well, it's, it, it, it expands your, your mind, the way that you think, your heart, the way that you feel. And this stories in this book does the same thing. I think it's just an exercise in seeing things differently and having that empathy for how different it must look and feel to be somebody else for a day. 
And mm-hmm. again, to suspend mm-hmm. that judgment that comes so very naturally to us as humans. And it's not about, it's not a value or moral judgment. Oh, you're a good person. You're not a good person. No, not, it's not often that it's, well, I wouldn't do it that way, right? That's the judgment is I wouldn't do it that way, but you don't know because you're not this person and you can't possibly be this person. So suspending your own self and seeking to understand somebody, asking those questions that show, hey, I care. I care about what informs you and the way that you think and feel about things. Can you take some time to let me know, right, what makes you you? I think that is such an Mm -hmm. important thing to do, especially in this day and age where everything just feels so divisive, Dr. Dan. Everything just Mm -hmm. feels like it's a point of departure for everybody to go down a different road altogether. And it's the the trigger is just so, so uh, combustible. It's just everything feels like right on the edge of completely blowing up. And it's one of these moments that if you just stop and think, well, even though we might disagree on absolutely everything, you're still human. So am I. We have a lot more in common than we have dividing us. Um, So I hope that's what these stories do is make you realize just because somebody is different in some way doesn't mean that their experience in their lives don't have an immense, tremendous amount of value. And, and everyone is doing the best they can with what they've got during their circumstances. And it's just that empathy and compassion, as you talk about is so, so important, not only for others, but for all parents listening for yourselves, right. To be compassionate towards yourself and kind towards yourself and show forgiveness for yourself so you can do the same for others. I think that is so hard to do, isn't it? Isn't it one of the hardest Mm -hmm. things you can do is cut yourself some way we hold ourselves to these impossible standards as parents to do everything, especially even now, right, with all of us having to work and to be parents and to be teachers and to be et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it never and still Absolutely. and still we can't step aside and say, Hey, I'm doing my best. <laughs> this is what you're exactly, gonna get today. Exactly. Is Coco Melon in the yes. back and me trying to piece <laughs> together a couple of words that make sense. <laughs> exactly. Okay, well, it is time for the parent footprint moment question, which you have spent the last uh, few years of your life preparing for. Um, so here we go. Tell us about a time when you became aware of yourself as a person or as a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on your child i i wish i had a a a bigger and more kind of aha moment uh, to share with you but it's actually quite um quite a silly little example of how things can really come into (laughs) come into very clear perspective very suddenly um i had bought ronan when he was probably less than maybe a year and and a few months old, this book called Allegro. Um, I'm a very big fan of of music and especially classical music. Um, And I listened to it quite a bit and I'd always thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if, you know, Ronan and I could share that bond of of having music to bond over together. And um, I bought him Allegro, which plays these classical pieces of music. And um, he had been playing with it. And I was, I remember I was doing the dishes and I was whistling um, Clé de Lune. And uh, I remember he, pressed the button to play it and I was like oh that was a Mm -hmm. coincidence 
And so I whistled a different song and kind of looked at him to see what he would do. And he, boom, he, he looked at me and he pressed the button to play the song. And then uh, I whistled wow. a different song and he, we went down the list and he pressed the button to every single song that I was whistling. And I had this moment of even when I'm doing the dishes, absentmindedly whistling a song, he's watching. He is very clearly mm-hmm. watching and taking cues about things that I love and care about. And he is mimicking them and showing me that he understands. And he has a totally different level of understanding than I have the ability to even just, you know, uh, kind of grasp right now. And so it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm, this human is real. He (laughs) understands so much. And he was only a year and change. And it was just a little bit scary to be honest with you, because then you feel like well, I, I really need to make this count. I need to, I need to do well. Yeah. This matters to him. And, he, and he's always watching, always right? Watching. This message that we give, <laughs> always watching, taking it all in. And that's why that's a great story. And it's such a great reminder of why we need to be mindful of what we're doing every day, not only for ourselves, but for our kids, because we are showing them the way. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Helena, thank you for sharing your time. Um, and Ronan, thank you for sharing your mother's time with uh, us. He was not happy about it. Very resistant, <laughs> but you know. He, but he but did, he did it. it. And we're, we're so grateful. <laughs> Tell everyone where they can find your book and your writing and all the good stuff that's coming out. So Craigslist Confessional is basically anywhere that books are sold. And you can also go to craigslistconfessional.com which is my website where I share some of these stories, um, read through a few of them and then see how you feel about them. You can contact me through the website if you'd like to chat. It's anonymous. It's free. And I'm not a huge fan of social media, but I am begrudgingly on Instagram at helenadeabala.com or rather at helenadeabala, which is my handle. Um, And you can find me there too, which is where I post random photos of me and my husband and, Never Ronan, because you <laughs> never know what will happen in these know. photos in 30 years' time. So yes. we're keeping him off. You never know. And I'm impressed you said handle. So you, you're getting you're getting the you're getting the oh, lingo gosh, down. You I got feel this a stuff. bit like a yes, dinosaur, yes. but I'm getting yeah, there. I'm, yeah. I'm okay. You're I'm getting, getting there. there. Everyone, check it out. Craigless Confessional. Helena, thank you again for your time, your wisdom, and your wonderful life story. And for all of us to remember to, uh, we got to Jerry Brown someone, show that we care, find out about someone's story. I love that. I love (laughs) that. Thanks, Dr. Dan. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for bearing with me through Ronan's little tantrums. (laughs) I love it. So real. So real. All right, everyone, that concludes our show. You know what to do, and that is to do your best to be the person you want your child to become. You know they are always watching. We need to invest in ourselves, which is an investment in them. Check us out at www.parentfootprint.com. Tell people about the podcast. Subscribe to the show. Let's keep this thing moving in the positive direction with our mission to make the world a more loving and compassionate place, one parent and one child at a time. And finally, I will leave you with that lasting question. What footprint do you want to leave?